It's Wednesday, and here at Criminal Minded Media, it's pop culture programming with an edge. First up, The Real Sopranos, executive produced by Armand Asante and Premium Pete. Pete, how you doing? And The Real Sopranos get ready for a six-part audio event that goes deep inside the DiCavacante crime family in New Jersey. These guys were the inspiration that David Chase used to create the Sopranos. And oh yeah, guess what? Look out for interviews with the cast and crew of the actual Sopranos, hosted by our partner, Premium Pete. Each Sunday night between 1999 and 2007, HBO subscribers would follow the trials, tribulations, and of course, the murders. Provided by what many consider the greatest dramatic show in the history of television, The Sopranos. While creator David Chase has said many times in his many interviews, the characters were amalgams of people he had encountered in his life. There are those, however, who have drawn a straight line to an actual Jersey Mafia family, to the Cavalcanti family. This season on The Real Sopranos, we will look at the rise and fall of a Jersey crime family, as well as the parallels between them and their television counterparts. And sometimes, truth is even more colorful than fiction. So does that justify everything that you do? Excuse me, let me tell you something. When America opened the floodgates and let all us Italians in, what do you think they were doing it for? Because, because they were trying to save us from poverty? No, they did it because they needed us. They needed us to build their cities and dig their subways and to make them richer. The Carnegies and the Rockefellers, they needed worker bees and there we were. But some of us didn't want to swarm around their hive and lose who we were. We wanted to stay Italian and preserve the things that meant something to us. Honor and family and loyalty. And some of us wanted a piece of the action. Now, we, we, we weren't educated like the Americans, but we had the balls to take what we wanted. And those other fucks, those other, uh, the, 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 the J.P. Morgans, they were crooks and killers too. But that was the business, right? The American way. Days before the premiere, the Hollywood Reporter called The Sopranos an attention-grabbing one-hour series that is an uncanny mix of family, force, and felonies. It wasn't long before America was hooked and water-cooler Mondays never were the same. Apart from cranked-up Wall Street traders quoting lines from the show or other mobster wannabes, there was another audience watching and watching very closely to the show's eerily familiar characters and plot lines and those people were the DeCavacantes. The DeCavacanti family were based on the wrong side of the Hudson River. They were the smallest and oldest mob family in America. They called themselves the Jersey Mob. The world now knows them as the real Sopranos. Both families hung out at a pork store, and the fictional Santanis is less than 200 yards from Sacco's, where the real mob could be found most mornings. You can walk around the corner. You can walk, you can go to the real gangster pork store and then walk down the street and go to the TV pork store. Even though the DiCavacante family was convinced that the Sopranos was based on their crew, were they? We will answer all of those questions by season's end. But to get there, we need to start 
with the Di Cavacante's backstory. The Di Cavacantes are known as the oldest crime family out of all of the 24 La Costa Nostra families operating in the United States, with their origins tracing back to Sicily. They became more formally organized as the years went by, and even though they were the smallest mob family in the New York and New Jersey area, they always maintained a membership of 30 to 50 made men and approximately 100 associates of their crime family. Scott Deach is a mob historian who's written a number of books on the subject, including Garden State Gangland. He's gonna serve as our historical guide when it comes to the Jersey mob. So uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey is located just south of Newark. And like Newark at that time in the early 1900s, it's a a magnet for immigrants. Um, It's an industrial town. That whole northern tier of New Jersey, Patterson, Newark, Elizabeth, they're all industrial towns. If you drive down the turnpike, you see vestiges of, of the old warehouses, the old factories. So that kind of whole area of New Jersey surrounding New York City, very industrial area, has a lot of jobs at the time, so it attracts immigrants. And some immigrants from the Ribera area of Sicily immigrate to Elizabeth, and then when one group does, it kind of becomes a magnet for other Sicilians from that area to come in to come into Elizabeth. So there's inf- there, there's evidence that some of the people that immigrated from Sicily to Elizabeth were already members of organized crime in Sicily and that came over and there was already a network there to start an organized crime group. So at that time in the early 1900s, New Jersey actually has two endemic or homegrown crime groups. There's the Newark family at that time, which was led by a guy named Gaspar D'Amico. And then um, which later became the DeCalfacante, was the Elizabeth family. But by the 1930s, the, the Newark family disbands and their members go to a variety of other families from New York. Um, but the Elizabeth family stays, and, and part of it is because everyone, most everyone is heirs from the same area of Sicily. There's a lot of interrelations, both through marriage and bloodline. It's a very close-knit, smaller family. Their reach is not as great, but they're able to kind of stay a little bit more under the radar. So some of the earlier bosses like Phil Amari don't really hear much about him. You don't, I would, I would dare say most of the listeners probably have never heard his name before. Um, but but really in, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, Nick Delmore becomes more important as a figure in, in the DeCalvacante family and eventually becomes probably its first, I would say, more well-known boss in terms of getting media attention and being featured in the papers. Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about Nick Delmore is, you know, he's implicated in the, he owns some breweries during Prohibition, and one of them, the Rising Sun Brewery, there's a shooting there where a, where a federal Prohibition agent is killed, and Nick Delmore is, is sought after, he goes on the lam, uh, he's eventually arrested in Berkeley Heights, where he lived in 1933, and he tells the cop that arrests him, uh, quote, what rat turned me up? <laughs> so... Um, I just think is a great line. So during Prohibition, he owns hotels, he owns speakeasies. One of the things about Nick Delmore that I, that I find interesting, kind of in parallel to Longy's Woman, he, instead of being a flamboyant gangster to the public, he's a businessman. He has you know, dinners for these foundations he runs. He's you know He lives in suburban New Jersey, does not live in Elizabeth. He lives you know in a nice house. He has a, a garden in the backyard. He's not viewed as 
you know, the, the dirty low-level gangster. He wants to be seen as a businessman. Now, sometime in the 40s, Simone Rizzo di Cavacante, nephew to Nicky Dell, was inducted into the crime family. He was nicknamed Sam the Plumber after his plumbing and heating company in Jersey. To date, Sam is widely accepted as the most influential of all the bosses before and after him. He was also known as the Gentleman Gangster. See, Sam was old school. Crew members were expected to uphold Omerta. The mob's code of silence, his only rule, was that if a Di Cavacante family member got involved in the drug business, they cannot use the family's name. Legend has it that Di Cavacante was even one of the gangsters that Mario Puzzo used for inspiration when creating the most legendary, fictional of course, mob boss of mob bosses, the Godfathers, Vito Corleone. It's true, I have a lot of friends in politics. But they wouldn't be friendly very long if they knew my business was drugs instead of gambling, which they regard as a, a harmless vice, but drugs is a dirty business. To outsiders, Sam DiCavacante appeared to be an upstanding citizen and successful entrepreneur. He was a family man, living a very traditional lifestyle. But beneath the surface, however, the DiCavacante family business consisted of labor racketeering, extorting the construction industry, gambling, loan sharking, the porn industry. They dipped their toes into anything that could put more money in their pockets. Sam the Plumber de Calvacante was kind of a protege of Nick Delmore. And kind of like Nick, he didn't live in Elizabeth. He lived in Princeton. He had this legend about him that he was related to some counts of Italy and had this esteemed royal lineage. Um, and if you look at pictures of de Calvacante, the first thing that's really interesting is he has a mustache, which is, you know, for later day mobsters is not, not that common. So the Calvacante lives in the Princeton area, but his headquarters is the Kenilworth Heating and Air Conditioning Company, Kenilworth, New Jersey. And from there, he um, takes control in the 60s, probably definitely by 63 uh, of the, as the boss of the family. But even before then, he's already on law enforcement's radar as one of the higher, higher ups in the, in the family. In the early 60s, Sam the Plumber became a confidant of the infamous commission the purpose of the commission was to oversee all mafia activities in the United States and serve to mediate conflicts among families. The commission consisted of seven family bosses, the leaders of New York's five families, Charlie Lucky Luciano, Vincent Mangiano, Tommy Gagliano, Joseph Bonanno, and Joe Profaci, Chicago outfit boss Al Capone, and Buffalo family boss Stefano Maggiadino. Now, Charlie Luciano was appointed chairman of the commission. The commission agreed to hold meetings every five years or when they needed to discuss family problems. After being considered the farmers and mutts of La Cosa Nostra by their New York counterparts for years, the Di Cavacante crew finally seemed to have respect of the five families most of it due to Sam the plumber. I don't think he was ever an official member of the commission, but he was respected enough to be in those circles when needed. 
you know, he was well respected during the Bonanno crisis in New York. He was brought in to be a mediator with Joe Bonanno and, and the commission. Um, but it's funny you mention Omerta. De Calvacante was one of the last of the De Calvacante crime family guys to preach Omerta. The tide started to turn against mob activities in 1963 when Joseph Falacci, a low-level member of the Genovese crime family, testified before television cameras on Senator McClellan's Congressional Committee on Organized Crime. He was the first member of the mafia to publicly acknowledge its existence, giving the American people a firsthand account of the mob's activities and hierarchy, including the five families of New York and the Commission. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I know a lot of people in the You're United in with States. every place that you go, you're associated with the leading gangsters and, and uh, racketeers in the United States. Mr. And it's Kennedy. not so shocking that you should be involved in taking the Greenleaf money. Mr. Kennedy, it is shocking to even involve a man with that kind of blood taint money. And I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. Well, I don't go for that kind of action. Well, then you could have... Uh, arrange that, not going for that kind of action, by disassociating yourself many years ago from Joe Costello. Why? You could have done it from Mr. John Kennedy. Vitale. Every place you go, we've checked your telephone numbers, you're calling every gangster in the United States. The Godfather he makes a little blood come out. In other words, that's the express the blood relation supposed to be like. He went on to explain that you live by the gun and by the knife, and you die by the gun and by the knife. Who was chosen? Who became your godfather? Joe Banana. Joe Banana? Happened to be now, my where godfather. is he? Is he on this uh, chart we have here? Is he uh, at the head of one of the families now? Yeah, he still is. He still is? Yeah. Still alive. Right. In 1961, the FBI opened an investigation into Sam DiCavacanti, known as the Goodfella Tapes. The Bureau placed bugs in Sam the Plumber's offices, along with other locations he was known to frequent. On the tapes were conversations between Sam, politicians, and police officers on the take. Hardly a detail of D. Cavacante's business and private life escaped the Bureau's electronic ears. The D. Cavacante tapes, as they became known, offered a rare window into the life as a mafia leader. While the wiretaps did not lead to any criminal prosecutions at the time, it came as no surprise in 1966 when federal charges were filed against him for running a $20 million a year gambling operation. So from 1961 to about 1965, uh, the FBI had a bug in the Kenilworth Heating and Air Conditioning Company, and they caught a lot of interesting mob business, um, both everything from uh, illegal gambling, which was one of the areas that he was heavily involved in, uh, the International Hod Carriers Union, which is the, the big union base of operations for the family, and a lot of the political corruption. And there were, there were some indictments that came as a result of hearing about some of the city councilmen and mayors that were on the take. As Sam, the plumber's legal team, prepared for trial, there was a mistake by his lawyers during discovery when they demanded to know what evidence existed inside those wiretaps. So in turn... And with questionable intent, the FBI and Justice Department publicly released over 2,000 pages of wiretap transcripts they had captured. All of Sam's dirty laundry was out there, waving in the wind. From a 1963 conversation, Sam is talking with Anthony Tony Boy Boyardo, 
son of legendary mobster Richie the Boot Boyardo and Angela Ray DiCarlo. The discussion focuses on the mafia methods of murder, from Tony Boy bragging about his father's exploits to the messy murders of slain mob leader Willie Moretti, who was gunned down in a New Jersey restaurant on orders from Vito Genovese. DiCarlo suggests the best way to murder someone is to give them a fatal dose of drugs. On a separate occasion, microphones captured Joe Ziccarelli, waxing on about his skills as a hitman, with enough daring to pull off a job even under the watchful eye of his enemies. In 1964, as the feud between Joe Bonanno and the commission reached its boiling point, the FBI recorded a number of conversations between Sam and others as he tried to mediate a resolution between the warring factions. On September 24th of 1970, with almost four years of legal battles, Sam DiCavacante was convicted on charges of extortion and running a $20 million gambling operation. He was only sentenced to five years in prison, of which he only served half, and turned over day-to-day operations of the crime family to John the Eagle Ridgie, a close associate. Although Ridgie would remain the de facto boss for over two decades. Some speculated that Sam the plumber continued as the shadow boss from his prison cell. John Rigi was the son of Emmanuel Rigi, who was a member of the family, so it's second generation. I think when Sam initially hands it to John, he does still kind of stay somewhat involved. I think once Sam goes to Florida, he's still involved in mafia stuff because you still see his name popping up even into the 1980s with mobsters that are down there. But I think the day-to-day and, and running of the family goes by that time, late 70s to Ridgie. And he he is the boss there from that point on for most of the next 20 years, 15, 20 years. DiCavacanti was released in 73 and returned to his home in Princeton Township, but soon realized that authorities in New Jersey weren't about to let him ride into the sunset quietly. Government investigators have launched a new probe into organized crime in New Jersey, this time calling reputed mob boss Simone de Cavacanti, or Sam the Plumber, before a federal grand jury. A report in today's Newark Star-Ledger says the government may have new leads which could expose de Cavacanti's influence in mob business operations. De Cavacanti, who is 63, lives in the Princeton area and allegedly controls gambling and loan sharking in central Jersey. In 1976, after almost three years of ducking subpoenas from the grand jury, Sam the Plumber headed for the nearby Gold Coast and sunny shores of Florida and settled into a high-rise in Miami Beach, as most gangsters do. While he was allegedly retired from the life, he seemed to be spending a lot of time with fellow mafia characters in sunny Florida. Southern Florida, along with many Americans, The leaders of organized crime have moved south in the 1970s. Some people come here to retire. The mafia has come here to work. Sam the Plumber de Calvacanti, 65 years old, a mafia don from New Jersey. De Calvacanti has told authorities in New Jersey he's too sick, too nervous to answer questions. And he has to take it easy in Florida. But for a sick man, DeCalvacanti has a busy schedule. He drives his own car. And almost daily, he comes here, the Miami Heart Institute. According to Dade County detectives, 
a regular meeting place for a number of organized crime figures. DeCalvacanti's car is parked for him in a doctor's only space. And on this day, within a few minutes of the time DeCalvacanti left, at least three of his friends were seen leaving. Many of the men who used to meet on street corners in Brooklyn or Newark now meet here. In Florida, DeCalvacanti is a Don among Dons, a boss among bosses. In 1980, Sam officially retired and would remain in Miami Beach until his death of natural causes in 1997. Unlike most of his mob boss contemporaries, DiCavacante was able to live out his life without being whacked or sent down the river. Despite all the evidence made available to the public in those wiretaps, the extortion and gambling convictions in 1970 would be the only charges ever brought against him. Good for him. So this is something interesting to, to think about. Nick Delmore dies at home, or dies out and about. He's not in prison. He's not killed. Sam DeCalvacante retires, spends the last 20 years of his life living in a high-rise on Collins Avenue in Miami Beach. Dies, I think, of a heart attack. John Ridgey, even after he serves a sentence, goes back home to Linden, New Jersey, dies in his own bed. Uh, so that's not the same for a lot of the New York bosses. So the fact that you know, sometimes being a smaller family, sometimes being under the radar, <laughs> you know, might better serve you in the long run. The D. Cavacante family would never again reach the heights of those years with Sam the plumber in charge. They were back to being the farmers and mutts of La Cosa Nostra, the second-class citizens to their mob brethren in New York City. Next time on The Real Sopranos. The New York families look at the New Jersey family as a pathetic stepchild. The New York families call them farmers, and they really hate that.